0: Luke chapter 17, verse number 11. Speaking of Jesus, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. Say, healing. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let me tell you that in the Greek, it is better translated, your faith has saved you. This man not only got his leprosy cleansed, he got his soul healed. This man, in his encounter with Jesus, had the fullest encounter he could have possibly had in that moment, coming from the top of his skin and penetrating down in the invisible spirit that was housed within that that leprosy racked temple. And now he was whole, completely whole, because of his encounter with Jesus. I want to talk to you about how Jesus encounters outcasts. I don't know if you've ever felt like one. Probably you have. There's likelihood for everybody in the room that there's been a moment, a season, a scenario where you walked in and you said to yourself, I'm not like everybody else in here. When it gets a little more intense and you have to repeatedly go back to that scenario or that people and you find out that they know I'm not like them, and the deepest meaning of being an outcast means you're shut out, you're not welcomed, you're pushed aside, you're overlooked, you're ignored. It is perhaps one of the traits of lovelessness to disregard a person completely, to ignore them completely, to, in, in essence, shove them aside because you assign no value to them. It's interesting to me that in the ways of Jesus, when you watch him moving throughout the Gospels, you constantly see him attracted to the outcast. He, he really didn't seem overly comfortable among the elite, among the religious, among those that dotted every i perfectly and crossed every t perfectly and wanted everybody to know it his harshest words were reserved not for the immoral not for the social failures but his harshest words were reserved for the church folk that thought they had it all together y'all didn't like that but there's more to come you'll have another chance jesus went to outcasts like a A traitor named Matthew who had sold out his Jewish heritage to be a tax gatherer for the Roman government. Jesus bent down and rescued an outcast who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they were getting ready to stone her while giving the man a free pass somewhere. They were going to stone her and Jesus went to her and rescued her and dispersed the crowd through his wisdom. Jesus met a woman named Mary Magdalene in whom there lived seven demons. And he cast out those demons. He went to a Pharisee's house and in that house came a woman of ill reputation and she let down her hair in public and bent down at his feet and anointed his feet with fragrance and perfume and wiped and washed his feet with her tears and her hair and it was scandalous and all of the religious folks were talking about Jesus and the woman but Jesus received her worship. You see, there one thing that we have to get a grip on as the people of God. We are not ever to be, this is never to be a social club for the upper crust of society. That's not what we're trying to do here. It's never meant to be for the elite are those that think like us and look like us and act like us and smell like us and and do everything like us. We're not looking to make a giant cookie cutter set on the corner of Calvin Davis and and, uh, Highway 20. Now, if the elite want to bow to the throne, come on. If, If the special folks and the super special folks and the privileged folks want to get in the presence of Jesus and humble themselves and beat their breasts and say, be merciful unto me, I am a sinner, then come on. But what I'm trying to tell you is as much as it depends on us, I'm going to tell you this, hear me, everybody's welcome. Anybody's welcome. And if they want to walk in the front doors of this place and we know that they're part of this group or this group or this group, societal outcasts, let me tell you, they are welcome to come in here and we will minister the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ to them. It doesn't mean we're going to agree with everything that might be attached to their life. Jesus didn't do that either. Jesus was known to say, now go and sin no more. So we'll operate in truth, but I'm going to tell you, the truth will always be attached to agape love. This is what the Lord did. This is part of His ways. And on this specific occasion, He met 10 outcasts, but He had a really powerful encounter with one of them. So let's look at it. First of all, we see in verses 11, 12, and 13 that the Savior was moving to provide for all outcasts what is he doing jesus is heading up to jerusalem to enter it for the last time or at least the last time in his first advent he is coming to jerusalem he's moving along the border between samaria and galilee and so jesus was on mission he was on a mission he always came knowing what the father had sent him to do he was coming to live the perfect life to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death that he laid down himself on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. His blood would satisfy the righteous demands of the law. In other words, sin comes with a penalty. And that penalty is death. And everybody that has sin must understand, and that's all of us, That somebody has to die for your sin. There are no free passes. Somebody will die for your sin. And there are only two options that you can can receive. You can die for your own sin and you can stay dead forever. Or you can trust in the one who died for your sin on the cross and rose again three days later, uh, later and ever lives now to make intercession for you. But there's only two choices. Either I pay for my sin or I trust that Jesus paid for my sin. So his mission was to go to Calvary, to go to Jerusalem to receive the full cup of God's wrath in his own body so that you and I might never have to drink from that cup. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he began to sweat great drops of blood. The agony, the weight of becoming sin was upon the Son of God. And you know the story that they beat him. And they ripped the beard from his face and they flogged him and they mocked him and they laughed at him and they pushed down a crown of thorns into his holy head and, and they spit on him. And then they put those timbers on his back, that timber on his back, and forced him to walk up to Golgotha's Hill where they pounded in Roman nails into his wrist and into his feet. And he hung there. And he paid the price. Here he is, moving fully and intentionally towards that horrific moment. He didn't let anything stop him. He had a church to redeem. He had a bride to rescue. He had souls to save. He was on mission. But along the way, Verse number 12, Jesus met some outsiders. And you don't get much more outside of things than being a leper in first century Palestine. The Bible says as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. Just stop there for a moment. Leprosy is often symbolic in scripture of sin. Leprosy does in the physical what sin often does in the spiritual clearly it'll kill you but before it kills you it ruins you and you see the effects of leprosy usually as time goes on it's a little graphic and it's a little grotesque so i'm not going to give you a a, um, a deep description of it but body parts literally fall off the skin is horrific to look at there is foul smells involved because of the putrefaction of the upper layer of the epidermis, and then it eats into muscle and tissue, and you can fill in the blanks yourself. But when you saw a leper who was deep into the disease in Jesus' day, you would recoil. As a matter of fact, the Levitical law had some stipulations about those that were lepers, Matter of fact, read Leviticus chapter 13. There's an entire chapter dedicated to what does Israel do as a people group when they find a leper in their midst. But here's what the lepers themselves had to do. First of all, the lepers were moved out of their home and moved out of the village. They could not be within the confines where everybody else left. So distance was was, um, necessary. Put them away. Sickness and shame and loss. Put them away. On top of that, they had to wear torn clothes so that visibly people could see them coming. There was even some commandments given about letting their hair look ragged and falling down. And then of all things, if they ever were approached by another person who maybe stumbled upon them, they were told to put a hand over their lip. And as they see the person approaching, they were were forced to cry out, I am unclean! I am unclean! I am unclean! That was their life. These men, 10 of them, it was a fellowship of death. They were all dying, nine Hebrew men and one man who was a Samaritan. And I'll tell you the significance of that in just a moment. But regardless, they were all outsiders, all estranged, all distanced, all suffering, all sick. And having very little human hope whatsoever. But Jesus is passing by. The most amazing, compassionate, merciful heart was passing by. He not only had the love, he had the power. And somehow these men had heard of this rabbi named Jesus, and somehow they knew that he was passing by. So look in verse number 13. As Jesus heard their desperate hearts, they are crying out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master! have mercy on us it reads very shakespearean in our english bible but i want you to picture the chaos Ten dying men screaming all at once at the top of their lungs as they watch their only potential hope walking by. They're talking on top of each other. They're screaming on top of each other. They are desperate. There's no way they're going to live. Put yourself in that place where you're at the point of death and somewhere, maybe 50 yards away, is your only hope. How would you scream? How would you call out? How would you be able to to, um, communicate your desperation? And there's ten of them. Sometimes, friends, we need to recognize that when God is working, um, it will upset the apple cart. That means where we are used to worshiping God in in a certain sway, in a certain move, in a certain groove, in a certain way. When the Lord comes across desperate people, those desperate people don't care about our rules. They don't care about the way we do stuff. All they know is something profound is happening to them. And though they may not see Jesus with a physical eye in that moment, they see one thing. They see the fact that they're dead before a holy God. They see that their sin has caused them to be put out and distanced from themselves. And they sense distance from God. And yet they sense also kind of overriding all of this, this this hope that the Holy Spirit is birthing in their heart. They don't know what's happening. We do. It's called conviction, but it's also called the drawing as the Lord is drawing people near to him and they may cry out and call out they may weep they may do whatever manifestation just conveys their desperation i like the fact that jesus didn't say hold on one at a time I want it simmer down now jesus let them give voice to their desperation jesus listened To all ten of those cries, as if there was only one man crying, he could discern them all. But notice their 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 statement. They said, Master, have mercy, have pity on us. Master, look at us, we're helpless. Master, we can't heal ourselves. Master, there's nobody that can help us. Master, this is just the way I am. Master, I I don't want to be like this, but I don't, I don't know how in the world I'm ever gonna be changed. I, I, I don't want to live like this. I miss my family. I, I miss love. I'm shamed. I can't even go to the, to the temple. I, I can't even worship Yahweh because of this disease that is on me and has gotten in me. But master, I've heard you care. And if you will, have mer- mercy, have pity on me. It's helpful for me to recognize that these, these guys didn't have an attitude of presumption, they didn't feel entitled. There was no accusation to Jesus, no accusation to God. It was just desperate times from broken men. And Jesus was, once again, this is his ways. He was drawn to that brokenness. The Pharisees couldn't help this guy, or these guys. The scribes couldn't help these guys. But Jesus could, and he's going to. He's going to help all ten of them. So let's go down into those verses. Look with me in verses 14, 15, and 16. And... The Savior becomes the healer in these verses. And he speaks to restore these 10 outcasts. Jesus requires faith evidenced by obedience. You need to hear me on this, verse 14. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And the Bible says, and as they went, that's crucial, as they went, they were cleansed. Now, you talk about a non spectacular healing in the sense of what Jesus did. Very different from what we see portrayed by us in certain modes of ministry. There, there wasn't a ta ta ta, you know, uh, just you know, lights and flashes and booms and, you know, gesticulations and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There was no waving of the coat and all of that stuff. It, 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 was, it was just Jesus from his distance giving a command to them. He didn't even say, leprosy be gone. He didn't even pronounce the mercy and compassion and and pity of God on them. He He didn't even really get into a deep dialogue with them. He gave them one command. By the way, it's a command in the Old Testament required for any leper that has been healed. In Leviticus chapter 13, you're going to find out when a leper was thinking he was healed, only the high priest could pronounce it. Only the high priest could initiate the process by which they got to go back to home, go back into the city, go back to work. But it's a command for a healed person. And so in that moment, Jesus is talking to men that are clearly not yet healed, but he commands them as if they were healed because it was through their obedience and believing that command that they would be healed. He speaks to them as healed people. And he says to them, go show yourself to the priest and the bible says that as they went not before but as they began to go they looked down it is highly likely that as they began to move together one looked at another and said all of a sudden all ten of them normal faces normal limbs Fingers grow back, toes grow back. They're unwrapping bandages and the baby's skin has returned and everything's new. And as they went, they had been fully restored to their previous condition, maybe even better than their previous condition, because the Son of God had spoken life-giving words over them. But listen to me, this this is a learning moment. Here's another part of the ways of Jesus. You know, faith sometimes requires action, movement obedience before we see the results sometimes he wants us to worship praise obey and move forward as if the thing has already happened even though we have not yet seen the visible results of it and that's a test to us especially those of us that are like grew up in just, you know, I was raised in word, 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 word. It's all about the Bible. It's all about the Bible. It's all about the Bible. And I always, listen, in my early days, I felt like, well, to, to claim by faith a healing is presumptuous because I was always taught, well, God's sovereign. And I was even, listen, I even said this from the pulpit one time. This is probably right after I became the pastor, a, a lifetime ago. But I remember saying in the pulpit, the most regrettable thing I've ever said in the pulpit was when I said that God sovereignly gave a disease to somebody. You will not find anywhere in Scripture that you can back up God sovereignly inflicting a disease on one of his own. Yet the the poor theology that had been jammed into me and that I received at that time uh, innocently but eagerly. And so for me, it was always hard to say, Well, we can claim a healing. We can believe a healing. We can trust for a healing. And we'll start operating right now in the moment as if it has already occurred. I felt like that was cheapening the sovereignty of God. I felt like that was uh, presuming upon the goodness of God. And yet now when I look at this, I realize sometimes faith is doing exactly that. Moving forward in confidence And that which has not yet manifested. And I believe that he's calling us to do that. It may be in this very area of physical healing. It's a hard word. But sometimes we just have to start moving into something before it is guaranteed at the beginning. Sometimes, it's very much like Abraham. God made massive covenantal promises to Abraham, but this is what God said. He said, now Abraham, in essence, paraphrasing here, go and claim the land that I'll show you. No directions, no instructions, no topography. It is, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, start going. And it was as Abraham moved through steps of obedience that ultimately God described the land that he would give to him. Here these ten lepers were told, go to the priest. The conversation could have been, well, why? We're not healed yet. But it wasn't. To their credit, the singular command that was given to them was enough. Yeah. And they believed Jesus, started moving towards the priest, and as they did, they were healed. Um, I'm, I'm going to say this as gently as I can. Uh, the, the only place where you really have faith is the place where you're obeying. If, if you're not obeying, you're playing. If you're not obeying, you're just, you're, you're tap dancing on a stage of religion. We only obey what we really believe. And if we say it with our lips, but we don't obey it with our actions, we don't believe it. And so this is a season, I think, as God tears down strongholds. That, and, and listen, we sing about that all the time. Tear down the stronghold. Every stronghold must come down. Every high thing must... Da, da, da. And, and we, we sing that stuff. And then God says, how about we make those lyrics about you right now? And he starts tearing down the high things in our heart. And y'all do not want to go with me this morning, do you? And he starts dealing with the strongholds in our lives. He starts tipping sacred cows. I mean, he's not playing around with us. It's not always comfortable. We want to grow deep in discipleship. But sometimes if we really inspect our heart when we're praying, Lord, take me deeper, Lord, I want to know you. We sang this morning, we were talking about seeing him, I want to see your face. And we, we, we say that, but in, in essence, if we, if we examine our, our, our deeper thoughts, we're saying, do all of that, but don't mess with my life. Don't change things. I want to see, I want to become like you, Jesus. But don't mess with my life. You say, Jeff, how do you know that? Because look what happens when he starts messing with our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Friends, I, I, I want to grow. I can tell you this. I, I sat there this morning and I so enjoyed the worship. But I, I, I'm just hearing the Lord saying, Jeff, think about what you're asking me. Think about what you're calling on me to do. Think about what you're saying. Not just this morning. I'm just talking about in this season. You know, we've committed to a trajectory and it's, it's never going to be, listen to me, it's never going to be as safe and comfortable as it once was when all we were doing was gathering, loving on each other, singing our songs, studying the Bible, and going home and coming back the next week. We're never going back to that. God has not called us for that. And so the only thing I can say is what he's calling unto us, he's going to give life to it as we obey him. Just like these, the life-bearing part of it comes as we move in confidence to the command that he gives. So, look down at verse 15 going into verse 16. Look at this beautiful part. Jesus witnessed gratitude evidenced by worship. One of them, say just one. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. This is the guy I want to be. This is the person that you want to be. Those of us that are saved, we're in the South, we use that term saved. Not everybody knows what it means anymore, but those of us that have acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus Christ and in a moment of time surrendered ourselves fully to him as Lord. In that moment where you recognize as a sinner, and by the way, we're all we're all at when we're born into this world, we're born into sin. And so I'm not being accusatory when I say when you as a sinner, there was that time in my life where I had to come as an unrepentant, unforgiven sinner. I recognized that I was lost. And when you come to Jesus and you humble yourself and you recognize that He is Lord of all, and you bow and you know you have no hope. And the fear of God hits you in that moment. And you recognize the only thing I can do is confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord so that the Father will be glorified. And you do that and you release. Salvation is a release. Salvation is you releasing the hardest thing that you will ever release to God. What is it? Total control of your life to Him. And that's what salvation is. Salvation, friends, is not merely praying a formulized prayer. Now, listen, you can be saved through the sinner's prayer, but not apart from a submitted heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I want to be not just the guy who gets my full spiritual healing, my salvation, 10 of them got that. 10 of them got the full physical healing. 10 of them got it. 10 of them obeyed. But only one came back to give thanks. I don't know what the percentages are. Here it was 10% of the ones delivered came back to worship, praise, and give thanks. One out of 10, just 10%. I don't know, man. I don't do numbers. Um, But I would say it would seem in, in Christendom today among those who say they have been spiritually healed by the blood of Jesus set free from their sin and acknowledged and received Christ as Lord of their life, I would say maybe it's a similar percentage where all of those that have received, not everybody lives a life of devotion, of thanksgiving, of gratitude. Not everybody stops what they're doing to come back, fall before Him and say, I love you. You're awesome. You did this for me. Thank you. Here's what I want for my life constantly, my wife's life, my children's life, your life. I don't want to just be an obedient Christian. I want to be obedient and wholly devoted to Him. I don't want to just obey. I want to obey, and I want it to be so hard for me to move forward because I just got to run back and be with Him again. I I Just gotta get back with him again. I just gotta talk to you again. I just gotta sing to you again I just I need to hear from you again. Uh, Lord I just want to be in your presence again. I want to bow down again I gotta tell you thanks again. You are good. You are glorious. You are awesome I know they're going on without me, but just a minute more just a little bit longer I can tarry here and just tell you how much I love you The evangelical church in the 21st century is so obsessed with doing. And listen, it's not a time to be a lazy Christian. You'll hear plenty around here about getting involved and all of that. But God help us if we're just trying to figure out what the list of things is we have to obey and and we're never getting intimacy and oneness with the Lord himself. That's that's no relationship. That's, That's an unhealthy fear of breaking the rules. That's not Christianity. So, this guy had obedience and devotion. Um, let's let's be that kind of church. If I can just speak um, strategically for a moment, the merger between Newbridge Church and International House of Prayer Atlanta is not because. Jeff and Billy and Dustin and Gabe are just good buddies and wanted to hang out more. That's not it at all. We were already doing all that stuff. The Lord birthed in the hearts of your leaders a need to pair community, New Bridge, with intimacy, IHOP Atlanta, so that we would have full free Excellent access to both of those things where we could serve and we could obey and we could learn and we could grow and we could do life together horizontally. But we also had a place that we could go intentionally and get away from the the noise of the world and enter into the prayer room on Collins Hill Road any time of day, any day of the week, 24-7, 365 a year, 52 weeks a year for 12 plus years. The doors are open and, you, and the, you go in there and the Lord just says, why don't we just spend some time together? Why don't you let me, child, love on you? And child, when you're ready, just love on back on me. <laughs> Friends, I, I don't want to exaggerate this because in one sense, it's not about a place. I hear the little protest, the little nitpicker protest stand up. Well, can't we do that anywhere? Well, are you? sure you can do it anywhere sure you can but there's something about intentionally going you see that man could have the healed man could have kept going to see the priest and praised god along the way he could have shouted a thanks over his shoulder as he was still going to the priest to proclaim but he didn't he stopped what he did and he was sent right back over here i'm going right back over here and he and bible says that he was loudly worshiping god that's in your bible Yeah, it's going to get loud up in here from time to time. Why? Because there's nothing super spiritual about putting a ceiling on devotion. The prayer room was a place where God, he saved my life and ministry there. He saved my soul in 1994, 3100 Sweetwater Road, apartment 112. He saved my soul. I was a drunk. I was addicted to drugs. I was suicidal. I was homicidal. I hated everybody, including... No, I hated nobody more than I hated myself. But he met me there, and he saved me. And then many, many years later, as a Christian, as a pastor, when I had lost my way and my heart was broken, I was disillusioned. I was wrestling through bitterness with other Christians. I had been done wrong and was playing the... I had a big V on my shirt for victim. I felt like a victim. And my world had gotten so suffocating and narrow and small because I was, I was afraid when was the next round of trouble coming and who would it come from? And so by God's providence, really, I found out about IHOP. And I went in there. And over about, I don't know, man, at least six months, I just went in there and sat in the presence of God. Nobody knew me besides Billy. And I got to be a Christian and I got to be a son instead of being a pastor. And it was in that place, in the quietness, and the the atmosphere of worship and intimacy and seeking the Lord, that God became big to me again. I had lost the bigness of God. I had gotten to a place, and I didn't even know it until I got in there. It was when I got in there that God just started peeling the layers of pain and the layers of hurt i promise you all i did for the first three weeks is just sit in there for literally a few hours a day and just weep people saw me in there they're probably thinking i'm glad he's in the prayer room but we need to get him a therapist man something is wrong with him (laughs) but it was the purging of all the grime in my soul where did it happen it happened in the prayer room listen one of the reasons why we're merging is because friends the days are coming where you're going to need to be as close to god as you've ever been in your life And I just challenge you. Sometimes I I encourage you, but I'm going to challenge you today. If you've never been in the prayer room, get in your car or walk or take a cab, whatever you got to do. Get over there and spend at least an hour there. You say, Jeff, I don't have time to go. It's (laughs) 24-7. You can go whenever you want. And I promise you, those of you that are feeling distanced and detached from God. He's not going to let your pursuit of intimacy go unrewarded. For me and countless others, a lot of that happened over there in the prayer room at IHOP Atlanta, and so I challenge you. See what he has for you over there. Verse number 16 tells us, and Jesus offered grace measured by distance. What do I mean by that? Out of the 10 that got healed, the Bible says he was a Samaritan, a Samaritan. Now, if you're new to your Bible or you're unfamiliar with biblical history, um, Samaritans were a race of people that you go back about 700 years from that time, from Jesus's day into Israel's history, and the northern tribe of Israel, they had been attacked. And the Assyrians came down and carried away Uh, countless numbers of Hebrews, and they took them up to Babylon, and they they had them there. In order to repopulate the land, they sent some of their people back into the northern part of Israel, and then they brought people from other lands, and so the northern part of Israel was no longer purely Hebrew. Uh, The Hebrews intermarried with the, the Gentiles, and there became this Uh, race of people that were known as the Samaritans. That was the area that it was in, the northern part, Samaria. And so now through 700 years there had developed a prejudice between the pure-blooded Jews and the Samaritans who they considered to be inferior because their genealogy had Gentiles in it. And so the Samaritans, in response to that, developed their own system of worship. They said, we're only going to believe and obey and, and, and study the first five books of the Bible. We're not going to do the Psalms. We're not going to do the historical books. We're not going to do the prophetic books. We are going to study and believe and live by the law of Moses, and we're not going to worship at Jerusalem. We're going to worship in Mount Gerizim. And so you have the Samaritan who is on the outskirts of both the race and the religion of the 10 guys, the other nine guys that he was doing the leper life with. And so, the nine Hebrews are motoring towards the temple, but it's a Samaritan. Guys, you, in this setting, you couldn't get more outcast than that. He was a leper, and he was a Samaritan. He's the least likely guy to be falling down at the feet of the Hebrew Messiah. And he did. This is what I love about Jesus. It's not all that I love about Jesus, but this is some of what I love about Jesus. Jesus is not intimidated by how friends you've lived, he's not intimidated how mingled your history might be with that of a pagan world. He's not looking to find out if you had all of your theological T's crossed and your I's dotted because you had the religious upbringing. He's not going to send you away because you worshipped wrong your whole life like the, the, the Samaritans did at Mount Gerizim and they got rid of half their Bible. Jesus is so intentionally loving that nobody will enter into eternity and say that it wasn't fair what they got. He moves towards the broken. He moves towards the hungry, a broken and contrite heart he will never despise. And this guy, a Samaritan, was so overwhelmed with what the Lord had done that he circled back. Go down into verses 17, 18, and 19, and let's just hear what the Lord says and we'll wrap up. So the king stops. Remember, he's motoring towards Jerusalem. He's soon to give his life for the sins of the world. But he stops to welcome the former outcast. And I use the word former on purpose because the guy is now welcomed in. He's now brought in. Listen to Jesus' reasonable question. And it's reasonable. I think we need to hear this today. If there's a sticking point, here it is. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other Nine. Come on, let's just be big boys and big girls here. Jesus said, didn't I heal everybody? Why is only one going off and shouting loudly to God? Why why did only one come back to get near me? I think it's a, I don't think it is. It's a valid question. It, It may even be something we shouldn't presume to know the answer to. But why is it that if you've got 10 Christians in the Bible belt, it seems like nine of them will obey their favorite five commandments and call that Christianity, but they don't want to get near to the one that saved them. I mean, if we've all experienced the same cleansing of our soul. There's no degrees of eternal life. You either have it or you don't. And if we, maybe it's just that we don't recognize what we've got. Maybe nine don't recognize what, what they got. But our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We stand justified before a holy God. He defends us from the accuser and the enemy who tries to steal, kill, and destroy According to Zephaniah 3.17, there are times where God himself dances around us and sings over us, loudly rejoicing over us, his children. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, your encourager got broke. I mean, that's just, that's the Lord's heart towards us. He said he would shepherd us. He said he would um, teach us and guide us, heal us, lead us. And he, he says, no matter what, no matter what's going on on the outside, he's he just constantly affirming through the Holy Spirit, I love you, child. 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 He said in Psalm 4610, if your mother and your father forsake you, no, 2710, if your mother and your father forsake you, I will take you in. But for some people, it just doesn't seem to... Stick. I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about us. And and I don't know the question, but Jesus' question from 2,000 years ago just hangs over us a little bit. He says, said, didn't I save you all? Talking to the church, didn't I save you all? So, as uncomfortable as that is, he, he goes a little deeper in verse 18. And here's his clear expectation. Let's make note of the clear expectation of Jesus. He says, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus says, the guy who's got the messed up Bible, the guy whose worship is all jacked up, doesn't know what he's doing, The guy who's covered head to toe with leprosy, he's the guy that came running. He's the guy that came back. There's something, and and, and let me give you this word. Jesus said it in in a different part of the Gospels. He said, The one to whom much is forgiven, the same same loves much. It's It's a kingdom formula. Watch this. That the one to whom much is forgiven, the same loves much. To whom The one to whom little is forgiven, the same loves only a little. But here's the thing. You can say, well, man, that leaves me out. That really stinks. No, 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 no. Let me tell you what the key is. You just need to become acquainted with how much you've actually been forgiven. If you see yourself as the little sinner, that's a sin in itself. You see, the key is not, oh man, I wish I had led a reprobate life. I wish I had Jeff's testimony of drugs, alcohol, and misery and homicide. Man, then I could love Jesus a lot. No, 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 friends. It's it's not about how many sins I committed. The way you find out how much you've been forgiven is what we've been talking about the whole time. Get in the intimate presence with Him. Get in the presence of holiness. Get in the presence of of God Almighty and His glorious love and His grace and His mercy. If you'll spend time in His presence, you will, and it's amazing, you'll become acquainted with how much you've been forgiven, yet you won't feel condemned. You won't feel accused. You'll feel relieved and you'll feel grateful. 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 This guy was just operating in gratitude. And Jesus is like, where's the other guys? Where are the other nine? Well, what I love about the Lord is He didn't sulk. He didn't ruin the moment for the one that did come in gratitude. He didn't look at him and say, Yeah, I was all ready to celebrate, but your other nine friends bugged out, so just go about your business. He made it all about the guy. Behold a singular delight. Then he said to this guy, Rise and go. You're free, son. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's the Greek word, sozo. It's the word that means saved. It's our salvation word. This guy not only got healed, but in his submission, and bowing before Jesus, and there was obviously some unseen, undefined reading of his heart by the omniscient Son of God, Jesus looks at this man and declares that he has saving faith, and he tells the man, your faith has saved you. He didn't just get his body healed. He got his spirit restored. He wasn't saved because he was grateful. He was grateful because he was saved. We don't earn heaven by doing a song and and dance and, and, you know, drumming up gratitude. But friends, these things keep getting fogged up. I'm pulling them off my head like every five seconds. I, I want us. I just feel like we're on the edge. Let me speak prophetically to this church. We are on the edge. Some of us have already crossed over. I feel like it's Moses leading the people across the Red Sea. Some of them had reached the other side, while some of them hadn't yet got in. And some of them were in the middle. But I'm telling you, what God has done, some of us are already entered the, have already entered the promised land of God's destiny for this church. And some of y'all are kind of in the middle. You're like, I'm still walking this thing out. I don't know yet. And some of you are, are, are just on the back end, and you're like... I don't know, man. Those waves could come down. It could be trouble. I don't know if I want to be a part of this. I, and, but the point is, is that God's destiny for us as an assembly is on the other side. Egypt's gone. Egypt was yesterday. That's not where we're going. But we're right on the edge of this. But here, here's, here's what I want to say. I don't know that the Lord's going to entrust it to us. If he happens to look down, he sees only 10% of us circling back to fall at his feet and say we love you yahweh you are faithful you are true you are holy lord jesus you are worthy i give my all i release my all i surrender afresh i think this is our season to offload some unprofitable cargo out of our lives to press in to 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 let go you know lot's wife missed full destination because she wanted to look back one last time at what was. Everything we've got is ahead of us. I give God thanks and praise and glory for, for everything that has led me spiritually, ministerially pastorally personally up to this point i praise him for it not all of it was easy not all of it was pleasant but i thank him for it i thank him for my baptist upbringing that taught me to love the word of god and the 99 percent of baptist theology that i still agree with to this day i feel like as a baptist they missed it on the gifts and that's the thing that kind of cost me my ability to remain in a de- de- denomination but i ain't angry at the baptist I'm not angry at the people that I used to run with. I love them. They're part of, we're part of each other's stories. But it is a chapter that I've already read. You see, he's still writing the rest of the book for us. So Jesus just looks at this guy and he, he says, all right, I'm setting you free. Rise, go. Go live your life. Go back to your family. Be restored. And he says, you're saved now. Jesus didn't let the faults of the majority obscure his delight in the individual. The majority of the guys didn't come back. They didn't worship. They didn't praise. They didn't give thanks. But Jesus didn't let that ruin the moment that he had with this guy. And in this case, Jesus highlights this guy. He calls him the foreigner, the Samaritan. The cast out became a standout. The guy who was least likely became the central example in this testimony we're talking about 2,000 years later. Let me read you some verses, and uh, in just a moment I'm going to welcome the worship team to come up. Just just listen to the verses, okay? Just listen. Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It is his will for us to be intentionally grateful. That means we're actually accountable for that. 1 Chronicles 16, 34, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. That's repeated in the Psalms. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts together, to which indeed you together were called into one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanks thankfulness in your hearts to god and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him philippians 4 6 don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and uh, supplication with thanksgiving with thanksgiving with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto god psalm verse 30 uh, uh, psalm 30 verse 12 The psalmist right in the middle of that psalm says, that my glory may sing your praise and never be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Isaiah 12, 4. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim his name to be exalted. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us be thankful By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, Ephesians five twenty. By the way, Ephesians five twenty, the part I'm about to read is is given in the context of being spirit filled. What is it? First thing, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. We talk a lot. Are you spirit filled? Hey, you spirit filled. little code word. (laughs) A spirit-filled church. Well, not if they're not thankful. It's not about tongues. Everybody wants to run to tongues. Tongues aren't even mentioned in that passage. But being thankful is mentioned first. Singing, worshiping, and being thankful. That's a sign of a spirit-filled person. That doesn't make your top ten list of characteristics among churches like our about what it means to be spirit-filled but it makes gods so as as i close worship team y'all can come and uh, get ready i just wrote down seven ways that i i feel like as a congregation that we can display consistently our gratitude to god and, and y'all just just hear me on this I, i'm committed in these areas and i'm asking you to Number one, we see in Scripture that thankful people worship God in prayer and song. That, that's just part of a Christian life. I don't sing all that well. Every now and then I'll have a moment, but most of the time my singing's not real good. And I live with two singers, and Landon could sing if he, if he wanted to. But the, the reality is, is I don't have the greatest voice in the world. But I'm not going to let that keep me from singing. Me and Jesus, and maybe some angels in my truck every now and then. There's a worship service going on there, and I am singing. Amen. Why? because i'm I'm thankful, man'. Amen. Let's be a singing congregation worship team when when let me preach to y'all for a second. When y'all are getting everything ready that you get ready for us every Sunday, come after it knowing that you're facilitating and leading a massive component of what God the Father wants for these people out here to be able to express their gratitude for Him. So come at this, not as just a band, and they don't. I'm, I'm literally preaching to the choir, but they, they, <laughs> they need to, to recognize so that they'll be in, in, uh, um, elevated in uh, importance placed on what they do. They're helping us give thanks. Amen. By the way, show up every time we gather here pre-thanking. That means you've been thanking them on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday, it's like, boom. Hey, y'all don't write me emails about this. It's just an illustration. When you take a champagne bottle and you shake it up, you don't just put it back in there. What do you do? You pop the cork. Some of you need your cork popped, amen. You need your cork popped. You got all this stuff in you, but you just your your, your dignity has kept your court. Ah, oh, man, I'm gonna blog on this. This is a thought. It's just kept you corked. You need the omnipotent thumb of God just to pluck that thing off, and you'll come out of that thing. Ooh, you'll just, and you just worship Him. You think He's gonna get mad at you? You think He's gonna be upset because you? Lost your ever loving mind in a moment? Paul said that. Paul said sometimes I pray without my own understanding. Sometimes I worship without my own understanding. So there ought to thank you, brother. There ought to be times. There ought to be times where it just explodes. Another way that we'll display our gratitude to God is living holy lives. Yeah, that doesn't generate the champagne popping illustration, does it? Listen, if we're thankful, we're just going to want to stay as close to him as we can. He's a source of our joy. He's a source of our peace. He's just our life. And the closer you get to him, you're not even going to be thinking about sin. If I give you a long list of things, don't go out this week and do these things, you know what's going to happen? The command not to do it is going to generate something in your flesh that goes out and motivates you to do it. But if we can stir each other up to get close to him and intimate to him and stay grateful to him, those things that have tripped you up, they're not gonna trip you up anymore. There's a shift that happens in a grateful heart. Grateful hearts, listen, all of us, let's give our finances to further his cause. Let's do that. If we're grateful, we give. Listen, I love all of you, but there's no barter system in the kingdom. All of us are called to give. Say, well, Jeff, I serve. Well, we're called to serve too. We serve and we give. And folks, generosity is the definition. You know you're a thankful Christian when you're writing checks or you're making text deposits and you're doing these things for the glory of God. And when the Lord gets your wallet, there's very little else that he doesn't have in your life. So let's be grateful and show that by being regular givers. We serve God by serving others with the abilities that he's giving us. We're grateful when we serve each other. Listen, God doesn't need you to serve him. Matter of fact, in essence, in the strictest sense, nobody serves God. Why? Because he has no unmet needs. But God has said, you serve me by serving each other. And if we're grateful to him, we'll serve each other. We'll gather together for worship. I only got two more. We'll gather together for worship if we're grateful. I don't care if this sounds old-fashioned or not. When the church meets, you ought to be here. Not because it's a rule, but because we're coming to celebrate and express Gratitude. And there's 500 different things all of us could be doing. But when we come together and your gratitude and your joy touches mine and we touch the person next to us and behind us, there's something about corporate worship that the gratitude and the energy and the strength and the presence of God that that you can't experience like that any other place. And then ultimately, because we're grateful, we're going to tell others about him. I never motivate towards evangelism with guilt. makes me puke when people try to motivate others with guilt. Go out and share your faith or you don't love Jesus. Oh, that's great. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Listen, we talk about what we love. So again, we get closer. The closer you get to him, the more you're going to love him. And the more you love him, the more there's going to be a flow. Because you're grateful for him.